Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you're using a few Bible this morning, page 1132, page 1132 in your pew Bible will arrive or deliver you to Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. This is our 16th study in Romans chapters 6 through 8, dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. So we have been at it for 16 weeks, and we're not quite done yet. We've got a bit more to go. But so far, we've been looking at the doctrine of sanctification primarily in terms of ethics and morality. Ethics and morality. And beginning in verse 18 now, actually 17, there's a change in topic. We're still talking about sanctification. We're still talking about a life set apart to God. We're still talking about holiness. But we're moving out of the realm of ethics and morality, if you will, which when I talk about sanctification, I talk about holiness. That's typically what we think about. We think about it in terms of behavior. We do this, we don't do that sort of thing. And there is certainly that aspect of it. Not participating in sin, disciplining our mind to think righteously, those kinds of ideas. But there's another very, very important aspect of the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of a set-apart life through Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to occupy us over the next few times together. We're going to be talking about the realm of suffering. Suffering. Sanctification and suffering. Because that's what the Apostle Paul does here in Romans 8. He's moving to, a, to another plane, another realm, a whole other aspect of the Christian life. And this is a topic that, quite honestly, we don't really like to talk about that much. Suffering. If we had one of those signs out front where you post the sermon title and so forth... People drive by and see, you know, a catchy title. Let's stop in and, and see what it's all about. Probably if we included the word suffering in that title, we wouldn't get all that many takers. Suffering is a topic that is not popular. It's not popular for sure in the church today. It's not popular in the United States of America a country that has done just about everything possible to eliminate suffering. And I'm not here to advocate suffering. I'm just here to explain what the Scripture says, what the Apostle Paul says, at least in Romans chapter 8, with regard to how do we respond to a, to a reality of our own lives. Suffering is there. It exists. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There is the suffering that comes to us because of our faith commitment in the Lord Jesus Christ and our living rebuke of society as a whole. We identify with Him who suffered, then we will suffer. The Scripture is very clear about that. There's also a definite aspect of suffering that comes to us and is common to all humanity just because we live in a broken world. There's a corruption that is woven into the fabric of this world of which you and I are partakers. It's within us. You don't really have to live all that long to see it. And you certainly, if you haven't yet, you will feel it. It's coming. So, how do we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, as followers of the Son of God, how do we live a holy life in the face of suffering? That's the question before us. 
And that's really the question that, that overarches this whole section of Romans, beginning in verse 18 and taking us all the way to verse 30. It's about suffering. And there is some glorious truth that is brought out in this whole context of suffering. So we're looking at three messages, at least three, with regard to suffering. This morning, verses 18 through 25, suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. Next week, verses 26 and 27, suffering and prayer. Suffering and prayer. And then we will come back to verses 28 to 30, some of the most spectacular verses really in the book of Romans and perhaps in the New Testament as a whole under the heading of suffering and sovereignty. Suffering and, suffering and sovereignty. So that's where we're going. We're talking about suffering. Verses 18 through 25, I'll read it here in a moment. Paul gives us in this section three faith-strengthening actions. There are three faith-strengthening actions that we must take so that we will not be overcome by suffering. It's there. Maybe you're suffering this morning already. Maybe know somebody who's suffering. This is important stuff. This is how we keep our sea legs, as it were, in the midst of it. Let me read the text for you and we'll begin. Verse 18, Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this. But also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Three faith-strengthening actions that we must take. The first is here in verse 18. We must consider the weight of glory. We must consider the weight of glory. Paul says, for I consider that, and he goes on to present, a, in essence, a mathematical equation. I consider it's a it's a firm conviction of his logizomai in the Greek and it that's exactly what it means. It's a firm conviction of mine that's been reached by rational thought. I've done some mathematics here. I have considered the gospel, and in comparison to that, I have reached a conclusion. Or on the basis of that, I've reached a conclusion. I've done my homework. I've done my math. I'm firmly persuaded of this. Notice as well, the verse begins with the word for. Do you see that? These little connecting words are important as we study the Scriptures together. They, they tie the thoughts together. They give us the context to, to unpack this. For, it ties us into what's gone ahead. It, it pushes us back a verse. Into verse 17. Where Paul says, if children, or, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and 
fellow heirs with Christ. And here it is. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul introduces here the topic of suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. And he's not going to just introduce it. He's he's going to begin to expound on it. And that's what he's doing for us this morning. Verse 18 is an explanation of how suffering and glory relate to each other. How do these two concepts tie together? Because if we can understand how they tie together, then we can have some kind of basis in suffering by which we might glorify God. That we won't be left like the unbelieving world, bounced all around by the plague. By, by the suffering that comes in life. Frantic at times to avoid it at any price. People will bankrupt themselves to get relief. And yet there is no relief. There's no relief. What is Paul's logic? What is his Mathematical analysis. What is his evaluation? What is his firm conviction with regard to suffering and glory here? Look at the verse. I consider, I'm persuaded, I'm fully convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says they're not of equal weight. That's his conclusion. They don't weigh the same amount. In fact, his persuasion, his conviction, his conclusion is, is that suffering is lightweight stuff compared to glory. It's slight, it's small in comparison to the glory awaiting the sons of God. That's radical. That is a radical statement. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he makes it a little bit more explicit there, he says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's an amazing statement. That is an amazing statement to fall from the lips of a man who knows what suffering is. At first blush, you would, you would see, well, this is a throwaway statement from a young kid who's, who's never experienced life and doesn't know what it's like. How are you going to say that, that suffering is, relatively speaking, a lightweight thing, a small thing, a, a momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory? Thank you, Mr. Young Seminary student. You learned it in a book. But don't talk to me because you've never suffered. But look whose lips it's put on. It's not the statement of a young, inexperienced man. This is a statement of a seasoned, veteran church planter who has suffered for the work of the Gospel more than anyone. Jot it down and go look yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We won't take you there now, but jot it down. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 28. Paul lays out his pedigree, his resume of suffering. Beaten. Imprisoned. Hungry. Thirsty. Sleepless. Shipwrecked. Overworked to the point of exhaustion. These are not the immature and undeveloped convictions of somebody who doesn't know. These are the mature theological reflections of a guy who knows Christ and knows suffering and has compared the two and says suffering doesn't add up to the glory that is coming. Suffering. We don't suffer that much. We have our bodily infirmities, some of which are pretty significant for sure. 
I don't think you can get out of your 30s without some aches and pains. Certainly by the time you get into your 60s there, you're constant companion. And Paul sort of addresses that, and I'll address it too, but that's not the primary thing he's talking about here. He begins first and foremost with dealing of, uh, with a suffering and affliction that comes because of who we are in Christ. It's kind of an argument from the greater to the, to the lesser. We can deal with that, then we can deal with this. We can deal with the sufferings that come to us because of our commitment to Jesus Christ, then we can deal with the sufferings that come to us because of our relationship to the line of Adam. But we don't suffer that much here in America. I mean, very, very little. People suffer for Christ. Not really. I mean, you, not like Paul suffered. Beaten? In other parts of the world, it's true. Imprisoned? Killed? Property seized? Children impoverished? For sure. Not here. Not here, not now. We're living in a bubble, folks. This is a bubble. And like a bubble, it will pop someday. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm not trying to tell you now, it's, it's, you know, it's going to happen tomorrow, it's going to happen next year. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is when I read the Scriptures... When Paul says that all who desire to live godly for Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, I'm pretty convinced it's coming. Maybe sooner than we think. Maybe so. Now, I have strong political persuasions. If you know me closely, you know that that's true. But I don't bring them here. But there is something that I will speak on just momentarily here. Because I think it fits under this topic of suffering. It could be close. Thanks to a few judges that sit on a federal appeals court. California now endorses homosexual marriage. Let me just explain to you what that really means. There's an expression that when California sneezes, the rest of the country catches a cold. What happens in this golden state has a, has a profound impact across the rest of the country. And so there are many, many whose eyes are on California in a November election cycle. Because the results of that election will undoubtedly ripple across not just the state of California, but across the United States. The state of California grants legal status to homosexual partnerships. They have access to the legal rights of inheritance and health care and and adoption, and many other things. But to date, they have not had access to the social acceptability of marriage. That has been off limits. Marriage is between a man and a woman because marriage is established by God. And He established it that way. For His glory and for the preservation of the species. But those who would engage in social engineering and tampering have decided that the legitimacy, the social acceptability of marriage must be extended to those who are living in open defiance of the Word of God with regard to this very deep and profound sin. There is no animosity in my heart towards a person trapped in this 
sinful lifestyle. I do not despise them. I do not hate them. I do not wish ill upon them. My heart goes out to them. It bleeds for them, for they are sinners trapped in an incredibly um, self-condemning bondage. But the idea that marriage and its legitimacy can now be applied here is a real problem. It is a further illustration of Romans chapter 1 and the downward spiral of society to where men call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. And when a society is caught in the downward spiral of sin outlined in Romans 1, most likely it will not recover. And so it is very unlikely, in my opinion, that this country will ever turn from its iniquity. And that, in fact, just the opposite will happen. It will continue to run headlong into it. So whether or not the constitutional amendment of November that will be on the ballot and on which I would encourage you to vote, regardless of whether it passes or not, that is not in any sense a victory or return to morality or anything else that somehow is going to transform California or transform the United States of America or hold back the headlong descent into depravity, the deep, dark descent of man. It's not going to happen. So there may be a temporary political victory, and if there is, I would rejoice in that. Because if there isn't, if the constitutional amendment does not pass, I will be most likely subject to legal sanction. For I will not marry in contrary to God's Word. Now, I am willing, but not looking forward, not looking for, to go to jail if need be. I am willing to suffer for Christ. I am not looking to suffer for Christ. I would prefer to not. But if that's what it takes then that's what it takes. And this message is all the more important. Well, it couldn't happen in America. Not in America. Yeah, in America. If America follows the rest of the Western world, and we are, then it will not be long for those who who speak from the Scriptures, who even read a passage like Romans 1, it will be considered hate speech. And it will bring sanctions up to and including the possibilities of imprisonment and fines. So suffering could be really close. It could be really close. So let's do the math. Verse 18, let's do the math. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is not comparing the sufferings of this life with the bliss of death. He's not saying it's really hard right now, but you're, soon you'll die and then you don't have to worry about it. I used to say to my children quite regularly, life is hard and then you die. Then I would put a spiritual spin on it and I'd say, but glory's coming by and by. And they would be annoyed with me, <laughs> as they rightly should. <laughs> But we need to make sure we understand the equation here before us. He is not comparing the suffering endured in this life with 
the bliss that you get at death. That's not the point. What he is comparing is the suffering of this life with the glory of the next. The glory of the resurrection and the age to come. And there's a big difference. Big difference. He is comparing life in one realm with life in another. He is comparing life here in the flesh with life lived in a resurrection body in the full glory of an unveiled view of God. And Paul says on that basis, suffering is no big deal. It's not that big. Not that heavy. Not that weighty. Now that's hard to get your mind around. It's hard to understand that kind of glory. We're like fish. We are fish. And we are fish because fish don't know they're wet. They live in a water environment. And the poor dumb things don't even know they're wet. We live in a sin environment. And we poor dumb things don't really know how sinful we really are. We don't really know how much sin has affected us. We don't know how much it's corrupted us. We don't know how much it has warped our thinking. So we really don't know what it would be like to live without it. Oh, we have fun once in a while sort of speculating on, boy, what would it have been like growing up with Jesus? Then we go off into some fairy tale land of fancy and think about such things, you know, how annoying it would be when he's never wrong. But I don't know what it's like to live with a resurrection body in glory. I have no idea. The scriptures give me some hints, but even there it's it's a hint. I'm looking through a glass darkly. You don't know either. Paul says that compared to this and that, and at least what he knows about that, and he knows more about it than I do, suffering's just kind of lightweight. We got only a vague idea. You know, if suffering for Christ is next to nothing compared with the glory of a resurrection body, then by extension, the physical weaknesses and sufferings that come to you and I by virtue of our identity with Adam, hmm? they're pretty small too. I mean, illness, bereavement, Hunger, financial setback. I'm not trying to minimize it that it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. Please. I've stood at enough gravesides to see the pain. I know it hurts. But Paul would have us do the math. You'd have us do the math. Jeremiah chapter 12. Don't turn there. Just listen. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5. It's a verse that haunts me somewhat regularly. Because God's speaking to the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is suffering. Suffering. And God says to him, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, how then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Now, now wait a minute, God. I'm suffering. What a little compassion here. Jeremiah! If you can't stand now, how will you ever stand when it really gets tough? 
Folks, if we can't stand now, how will we stand when it gets tough? If we're knocked over by bodily affliction now, how will we stand? When a commitment to Jesus Christ could mean the loss of everything, everything. Let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me, Jesus said. One fellow wrote, quote, If we allow the difficulties of life to absorb our attention, they will effectively blot out the glory that awaits us. Wow. If we allow the difficulties of life to absorb our attention, they will effectively blot out the glory that awaits us. We won't see it. Doesn't mean they'll eliminate it. It means they'll obscure it from our vision. We won't see it anymore. And if we don't see it, our math is going to be all messed up. Paul is not a blind optimist. He's got to be one of the most hard-nosed realists that you'll ever run into. This is not wishful thinking. This is somebody who has evaluated reality in light of the Word of God and he said, what is here and what I see and what I experience and what I, what's going to come upon me compared to what is before me, it is no comparison at all. Consider the way to glory, he says. Consider it. Weigh it and be persuaded. I didn't intend to do this. And that is get stuck in your first point. In any case, second, we must contemplate the example of creation. Verses 19 to 22. We must contemplate the example of creation. Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul is supporting his assessment that the child of God should look to the future and thus make correct and clear judgments today. And he does it by drawing on the account of creation. He says, learn something from the creation. They have an example to teach you. And his argument essentially is that since creation has a persistent expectation of future glory, then the believer should also. That's the lesson. Since the creation is looking for the glory, you should be looking for it too. Paul's using poetic terms here, verse 19. He is using poetic terms. He's portraying creation literally like straining its neck to see what's coming. Kind of like being at the Rose Parade and, and leaning forward and straining your neck to see the float as it comes around the corner. That's the idea. He's personifying creation here. That's why I say he's using poetic terms. And he's personifying creation as stretched way out looking for something that's coming on the horizon. Now, this kind of imagery is all through the Scriptures. It's not foreign imagery at all. He's not introducing some new idea. These are people who are very 
comfortable with the notion of rivers clapping their hands and mountains singing for joy. In fact, Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Isaiah 55, verse 12, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. We like that kind of language. We like that kind of imagery. It's, it's vivid. And by the way, that kind of imagery that appears throughout the Old Testament is in the context of creation rejoicing when God finally comes and judges sin and puts this world right. When will the trees clap their hands? When will the rivers clap their hands? When will the mountains sing for joy when God comes and puts an end to the mess? What is creation straining to see? Verse 19. The unveiling of the true nature of the children of God. That's what creation is looking for. Metaphorically. Verses 14 through 17, Paul's made it abundantly clear that Christians are already sons of God. I looked at that last time. But Christians are experiencing suffering, verse 18. They experience weakness, verse 26, like all other people. And so Christians in this life don't really appear that much like sons of God. I hate to tell you that, but you don't really look that much like a son of God. I mean, where is the royal splendor of it all? Where are your robes? Where are your treasures? You're a son of God, yet you suffer like everyone else. But when Christ returns... When Christ returns and summons His church to join Him in the clouds, right? He transforms their mortal bodies into immortal bodies, their weakness into strength. That which has been true in principle becomes manifest for all the world to see. It is the unveiling, it is the revealing, the glory of the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The reason creation, Paul tells us, is looking for the, our unveiling, our revealing, our resurrection glory is because when Adam fell and humanity with him, creation bears the brunt of it. When, God, when Adam disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit, God cursed the ground. He limited its fruitfulness. He deprived it of its ability to fulfill the purpose for which it had been created. And instead, he consigned it to a futility of corruption and decay. Beyond that, the consequences of Adam's fall spread to the animal world, bringing death and disease. As God's appointed king, when Adam fell, he took it all down. He took down his wife, he took down his children, and he took down the creation over which God had made him overseer. It all fell. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, has a really vivid portrayal. If you're familiar with that story, perhaps you've even seen the movie, Winter Descends on Narnia. Winter on Narnia. Winter on Narnia is 
the curse that came because of Adam. Futility. Corruption. My rose garden feels the curse. It's involved in a constant and losing fight with the weeds. If you like to watch Animal Planet or whatever, maybe you grew up on a farm. The animal world is involved in the corruption, the decay, the futility. As one kills another in the most violent ways. I even look into my dog's poor, sad old eyes. And I wonder sometimes... She's not thinking, I'm here because creation suffers. But within it, within the creation, Paul says there's a there's a ray of hope. See it in verse 20 in hope that the creation itself also will be set free. I mean, Paul is is consciously reflecting back on the early chapters of Genesis, right? The curse of the ground, chapter 3. So I think what he's referring to here is Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The first glimpse of the gospel. A, a tantalizing prophecy that over time grew in its clarity as Revelation unfolded. Again, I know he's, he's, he's using personification here for, for creation, but I, I think that's the idea that he's building on is that, yes, it was subjected to futility, but, it was, but there was always a hope that it wasn't going to be like this forever. Someday, creation will share in the glory of a sinless universe. God will again grant it the freedom to fully enjoy that for which it has been created. That for which it longs. A freedom it doesn't have as long as man, its Lord, is in disgrace. What will that freedom look like? Reversal of the curse? Establishment of peace and prosperity? Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, you can go there on your own time and read them. Prophecies of the Millennial Kingdom. When the reversal begins. When the lion shall lay with the lamb, right? When the land will be prosperous. When the Arabah will sprout and blossom, the prophet says. The desert. We ought to be able to relate to that where we live. All that brown stuff out there. It's going to become really green and productive. After a brief rebellion, that millennial kingdom, the existing earth and heavens will be destroyed with fire, Peter says. John confirms Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And then the new heavens and the new earth created which sin is completely banished. In hope. Creation is looking forward in hope to that which is to come. Lesson for you and me. You're supposed to be looking forward as well. I'm supposed to be looking for this. I'm to contemplate the example of creation. Verse 22, we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Whole creation is straining its neck, is looking for the hint of the rising of the children of God, the first rays in the east. While they're doing that, it says they're experiencing the pains of childbirth. I mean, the pain is real. Childbirth pain is real. Never personally experienced it, but I've been around someone who has. But that pain carries hope. Doesn't it? The pain carries hope. 
The hope is that when the pain finally ends, or in a moment of intensity, it brings forth the new life. It's Paul saying here, verse 22, the creation is groaning and suffering. Pains of childbirth. It's like the creation is in the process of having a baby. What is the baby? It is the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. It is the consummation of the ages. It is the resurrection of the people of God. That means Wednesday's 5.4 rattler. That was a labor pain. That was a labor pain. But they're still more than five minutes apart, right? Still more than five minutes apart. Consider way to glory. Contemplate the example of creation. Third, we must comprehend the need for waiting. We must com- or contemplate the need, or comprehend, sorry, the need for waiting. Comprehend the need for waiting. Not only this, verse 23, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Not only is creation groaning and waiting on this, we are groaning and waiting as well. We are awaiting the final phase of adoption, the transformation of our physical bodies at the resurrection or the rapture. This groaning is a, it's a, it's a non-verbal kind of groaning. It's, it's deep within us. It's a groaning that is, stems from our frustration. Do you ever get really frustrated with yourself because you're just not living like you want to live? Frustrated with your moral weakness? Frustrated with your physical weakness? Deep inside, there's a, there's a longing, there's a, there's a groaning, there's an agony, there's an eager longing, waiting for that weakness to cease, the new age to come. That's what Paul's talking about. We have an assurance, beloved. Take a look at that. Verse 23. We have an assurance. It's coming. We have the example of creation, but we have an extra assurance. Verse 23. You see it? The first fruit, the Spirit. First fruits of the Spirit. Oh, God is so good to us. He is so good to us. He has given us His Holy Spirit. His presence within us is a foretaste of glory divine, as the hymn writer would say. He is the pledge of the full glory of what God has in store for us. He is the evidence that at the present time we are the sons of God. Verse 14, verse 16. Other parts of the New Testament, Paul calls them our down payment. Our pledge, our guarantee, our engagement ring. Here, first fruits. First fruits, it's just an Old Testament concept. What it means is, is that at the beginning of the harvest, you, you give the early part of the harvest to the Lord in sacrifice in full assurance that He will bring the harvest to fruition. See, it's a faith thing. You give away the first stuff coming out of the ground. The whole planting cycle is a faith thing, right? You take the food you could eat, you bury it in the ground. In hopes that God will bring more. And then when He brings the early stuff, you pick it off and you give it to Him in hopes and assurance that what has come early is merely the tip of the iceberg of what's going to come. He says that's what the Holy Spirit's like to you and I. He's the tip of the iceberg. His present ministry within you is but the tip of the iceberg of that which is to come. John says it this way, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are... Now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared, or has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. We are children of God. We just don't know what it's going to look like in the end. You're like a caterpillar. So am I. We're caterpillars. Because caterpillars turn into what? Butterflies. 
It's kind of hard looking at a caterpillar to imagine that thing is going to become a beautiful butterfly. So I know it's kind of hard when you're looking at me and you're thinking that thing is going to become something beautiful someday. But it's true. It's true. Verse 24, for in hope we've been saved. We have been saved. You see it? It's happened. But hope that is seen is not hope, for what is one also hope for what he sees. Paul's saying is, listen, if this was already completely obvious, then there would be no need to hope in it. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Your life today can be best characterized by the word hope. Hope. Not hope in the sense of, boy, I hope I get a letter in the mail. Not that kind of hope. A hope that is a a settled confidence in God that He will do what He has said He will do. That's hope. What God has promised will come true. These mortal bodies, currently the residents of sin and corruption, will someday be transformed into glorious bodies, liberated from the bondage of decay and suited to live forever in the presence of God. That's what we're hoping in. But obviously, we haven't seen that transformation yet, have we? And when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, it's pretty cloudy. And you're thinking, oh, another day. Ah, I'm not sure I'm so much closer. Where is this coming from? Paul says, exercise perseverance. Verse 25, you see it? This is the essence of faith. Wait patiently for God's promise to come true. Wait patiently. And one of the means by which God has given us to strengthen that patience is the Lord's Supper. So gentlemen, if you'll join me here.